to big episode 50 of no challenges remaining with a new intro but the same old co-host i am ben rothenberg joined as always by courtney to win happy 50th courtney oh we're so old we are really old it's exciting isn't it having like a these are exciting times i think so it's nice i mean i think that you know it speaks towards your commitment specifically ben of making sure that we have every one of these every single week like we actually got regular on it which is like seriously all all like credit to Ben. He is the fiber that keeps no challenges remaining regular. I was gonna make a better uh, useful joke myself, so we're on the same page there. <laughs> See, after fifty episodes, of course we're on the same page. We make the same poop jokes. High five. <laughs> <laughs> So, on this show, our 50th, we are going to... I'd actually asterisk. I'm not sure it's actually our 50th. I think it's around 50. Probably a little over 50 because we had, like, part A, part B of some shows. We, like, skipped one number for some reason. Anyway, on this episode, we're going to talk about Courtney's adventures last week at Stanford, where Domi prevailed. And then we're going to talk about the bigger news, height-wise and in other terms. Um, Victor Troitsky and Marin Cilich both getting in trouble with drug testing authorities and the fallout and the ramifications therein. And then we're going to take a little peek into my week in Washington and things that are going on here at the City Open, focusing on Sloan Stevens, who's already out of the tournament on the first night. So sounds like something to do. Better got to get her while she's still here, I guess. So let's do it. Okay, Courtney, how was Stanford? Stanford was good. Obviously, the Bank of the West Classic was a bit decimated by withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Sharapova, Bartoli, Lisicki, Flipkins, just a bunch of people just pulled out. So it was a much weaker draw. I mean, what was it, just two years ago that this draw featured Serena and Maria? Yeah, and I think I think maybe even like three years ago, it featured Serena, Maria, and Venus back when Venus was like number two. Right, right. So it was, you know, so it's definitely an off year, which was unfortunate. But I mean, luckily, there were still some good storylines. I mean, Jamie Hampton making another WTA semifinal was pretty great. And and she really kind of opened up during press. I think everybody knows how I feel about Jamie Hampton. I think she's great. I think she's very misunderstood to the extent that she's misunderstood. Um, (laughs) But uh, why? Why are you laughing? I like the phrase like, she's misunderstood to the extent that anybody's trying to understand her. I think it's probably more the more what you're trying to say there. Yes, exactly. Okay. But no, she was great and played some pretty good tennis. But yeah, I mean, it, it, the nice thing was that it ended up a legitimately like quality final yeah. with Sibulkova and Radvanska. Sibulkova won, Radvanska did not. Good on Domi to to come back from being double bageled in a final in Sydney by Aga to come back from I think a breakdown in the third set to win her third career title. Not bad, Domi. And it's com- good for her points-wise because she's coming up defending, or she, I guess, already lost her points for having won Carl's bet last year. A sort of soft draw during the Olympics last year, and she made up for it by winning this equivalent premier tournament. So, solid work, keeping up with, I don't know, not getting pulled in by the undertow of point defending or something. That was 
That was weird. That was not my best analysis. That was really clunky. Yeah, not great. It's a bit awkward. But anyway, we're just going to power through it because we are 50-episode veterans. <laughs> what were other highlights of your time there? I mean, it's obviously a tournament you've done a lot. I think it was actually the first tournament you ever did as press once upon a time, right? That is correct, Stalker. Yes. Some say Stalker, <laughs> others say Friend. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, maybe. Depends on who you're talking to. Mm. But yeah, no, Sanford was my first credential back in 2000, I want to say, nine. 2010 maybe 2010 if I remember yeah probably 2010 so it's always really nice to be back I mean like I said it it was difficult this year because the field was a bit weak and then on top of that as we'll discuss later there was a bunch of like other tennis news that was going on that kind of was like you know I'd be driving down to Stanford it's about an hour and 15 minutes away from my house and by the time that I got to Stanford like somebody was being suspended for something so it was just you know and then you'd have to like turn to those and and stories and deal with them so the amount of attention that the bank of the west classic got this year was probably not great and definitely is not on par with what they've received in the past but yeah i mean i thought that on the whole the tennis was pretty good you know it was up and down like Redvonska was super um rusty so you know she was kind of like touch and go from match to match but i actually right. thought obviously her best match was against jamie hampton who she dismissed quite easily touch and go but she still came very close to winning the tournament yeah yeah absolutely she did and you know i mean i, I wrote this in the si report card today that unfortunately i think what the final of Stanford kind of reminded us, not that we needed reminding, because I think that most of, most of us probably know this, is that the match is very rarely in August hands. Yeah. In other words, she can be winning and like whatever, but if the if her opponent has any sort of offensive firepower and can just flip a switch or, or just zone for 20 minutes or whatever it is, like she's kind of screwed. And that's pretty much what happened with her uh, against Bukova, where, you know, she was really in the driver's seat and looked in a good in a good spot to to win her title and Domi finally found her forehand and just started hitting the crap out of the ball and and there wasn't much that Aga could do about it so you know it's something to kind of keep in mind going down you know kind of down the road when you kind of handicap her chances so there we go now let's get to those bigger stories that I guess were distracting all of us from Stanford I know So the big news of the past week happened just after we recorded our last episode, actually. So it wasn't great timing for us. Was Victor Troitsky getting announced as having received a 18-month ban from the International Tennis Federation for refusing a blood test? Refusal of the blood test happened this year at the Monte Carlo tournament in April. Troitsky was allowed to keep playing while the matter was adjudicated. And look at me using my big lawyer words. It's weird. Weird, right? I'm on a jury now, so I'm kind of like totally in your profession. <laughs> Former profession. Former profession. Well, yeah, so I'm actually more in it than you are now. Mm-hmm. There you go. As the matter was settled, Trotsky kept playing, played Rome famously. Um, he had a meltdown there. He played the French Open, he played Wimbledon, he kept going. Now he got suspended. People were very blindsided by this, I think it's fair to say, as people usually are by doping things even if they've been kind of in the works behind the scenes for a long time. What was your reaction to the news when you when you saw it, according to the Trotsky had gotten banned. And then as you started to peel back the onion of refusal. (laughs) The onion of refusal. Um, You know, definitely shocked just because he's just not a name. I mean, he's probably the most high profile male tennis player to be banned over the last few years. That could change in the very near future. Right. Yes, it could. Yeah, no, I was definitely surprised. And especially once I kind of read what was initially the ITF release on it, which was just a press release. That kind of said, you know, that Troisky 
claimed that he was ill and he claimed that the doctor excused him from the blood test and, you know, kind of all this kind of blindsided him and whatever. It sounded very like, what? Like, what exactly is going on here? So it was quite good that the ITF decided to re- to actually post the full 25-page decision yeah. from the Independent Tribunal, which I think shed a little bit more light on kind of the nuances of it. I, I think that it is probably, a, it's safe to say, a complicated situation. It's a complicated case because, I mean, I don't necessarily see Victor Troisky as a doper. No. Now, that being said, I mean, how are any of us supposed to know? Okay. So, but I don't think of him as that way. So, I mean, I felt like he probably was telling the truth that he thought that he was excused from it, that I think that the tribunal, based on the evidence that was produced, was presented, was right in saying that it was kind of an unreasonable assumption to make. Um, And so, yeah, like, I guess I kind of in the big scheme of things don't really have a problem with with kind of what happened. I personally think that he got fairly hosed. I, obviously, we don't know exactly how like, the conversation played out line by line with this doctor and him. That's the sort of part that's left open to interpretation some. It's the he said, she said thing on that. And I do think that it, I don't, I can't imagine that at any point while he was saying, I don't want to take this test, I'm feeling sick. I mean, having known Victor Troisky a little bit up close and from, you know, across the room distance for a while. He's an incredibly whiny person. I was going to say the word that comes to mind that I thought you were going to say is whiny. <laughs> so so I can totally imagine him just pitching a tantrum about this and being just sort of like, I don't want to get this shot, man. I don't want to get it. Don't take my blood. I'm sick. I don't feel good, okay? And just sort of just like, you know, just making a scene. And then the the doctor being like, okay, like, you know, write this letter or whatever and then do it. And he's like, okay. And convincing himself that he had won or convincing himself that he had, you know, swayed her into agreeing with him. And I can't imagine that he left that room at all thinking he was about to have already written himself a ban for 18 months. Yeah, no, so, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think that that's generally speaking, that's kind of my take on it as well. I mean, I think that I think the tribunal decision was smart insofar as it it went there. It went and, you know, basically said, like, this is a guy who's prone to exaggeration. He kind of made up his mind that he didn't want to give blood that day. And so he kind of heard what he wanted to hear. Yeah. He heard what, and I'm inclined, again, like kind of interacting in based on my interactions with Troisky, like I'm inclined to kind of believe that. I don't think that Troisky was trying to cheat the system or, or anything, but at the same time, I do think that he was kind of trying to cheat the system insofar as like he didn't understand, you know, how serious it was. Like, you know, I mean, I think Steve Tigner in his piece on the decision kind of said it perfectly where he was like, I'm reading the decision and all I can think is like, why? Why didn't you just take the test? Yeah, no, seriously. It was you know, so like, stupid. Come because on. I don't think like, anybody really, if people I think are doing this to play devil's advocates, I don't know that anybody really thinks that Troitsky refused to take this test and then took it a day later because he knew there was some illegal thing in his system that would show up. I just, I don't believe that. I really don't. I don't think there's proof of that. I mean, being on a jury now, as I already mentioned, the reasonable <laughs> doubt for that is ridiculous. I think sure. that he... I don't think anyone can say, oh, he was definitely cheating. That's why he did this. Because he agreed to take the urine test. And I know there are certain things that only show up in one or the other. But I don't think that cheaters, especially Troitsky, who's a bit of a a bumblefuck sometimes, (laughs) I don't think he would be as finely tuned, especially with his coach, too. Like, that's not like a, you know, that's not a precision machine those two have going there. No, I was going to say, no offense to Victor Troitsky, although offense to Victor Troitsky, I don't think that he's bright enough to pull off 
some sort he's of not scheming. He's not a scheming guy to like no. get out of a doping test. Yeah. I, you know, I genuinely believe him when he says what he said. He didn't feel well. He like, you know, because if you were scheming, he actually would have gone to the tournament doctor to get like some sort of note or something, or he would have gone to the hospital after, you know, to prove that he was actually sick. No, Victor Troisky like said his thing, got out of it, went back to his hotel room and conked out. Yeah. No. And it wasn't until he came back to site the next morning and the ATP tour manager was like kind of indicating to him that there might be a problem that he kind of freaked out and like found the doctor and gave the blood. Yeah. You know, so it's just kind of one of those situations where it's just like, you know, stupidity is not an excuse, but stupidity is a mitigating factor. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's fair. And I think that this is at least, I mean, with the ban, I think the ban is excessive compared to what other people have gotten for actually having things in their system. But I do think, in the terms of one of the pe- things people talk about, or the, I think actually the authorities talk about openly when talking about their decisions, is trying to set, make an example out of somebody. And I'm pretty sure this is a memorable case that now no one's going to be refusing blood tests anymore. Yeah, I think this will no, be the absolutely. last time that happens. But I think I think it's I think it's an unfortunate, I don't know the right verb, I want to say crucifixion, but it's probably a little too much, of, of Troitsky to make, you know, make an example out of him in this extreme way. 18 months is an unbelievably long time. It's a very reputation-besmirching thing forever. It'll always be one of his first Google hits the rest of his life. I mean, that... And he's and the 27. YouTube video. And he's 27. And he's like, that's pretty much like prime career right now for ATP. Yeah. And when he comes back, he'll be sort of on the tail end. And he was playing decent ball. I mean, I think he made fourth round of French Open this year. So I mean, this just could not come at a much worse time for him. Yeah, I think he got. I think he got fairly hosed. I do think that he sort of pointed the hose at his own face a little bit, but somebody else <laughs> turned it on, and it's it's a visual I'm enjoying at the moment. But yeah, no. I, I I think that it's. I I don't know. I would have voted for just punishing him, but not that much. Not eighteen. Well, months. I mean, the the least that he could have received was a year. Okay. He couldn't have gotten any lesser because, I, as I understand the rules. It was two years for a, a refusal to, to provide a sample. Mm-hmm. And then you can mitigate that based on whatever circumstances, but no more than half. Okay. So everybody's like, oh, well, you know, Streets of a got whatever, like eight months, I think. Ramboli got, I think, six months or something like that. Okay. And they actually tested positive yeah. for shit. And he, he skipped. And he's going to get 18 months, which is more than twice what Ramboli got for having diuretics in his system. And It's, you know, it's sort of uh, like people who I think there are certain ways you can get charged with attempted murder that get you much longer sentences than you know, manslaughter. Right. It's like that. Yeah. So. so I think that is it pretty harsh on Victor Troisky? Yeah. I mean, I do kind of feel bad for the guy because I think that I genuinely don't think that he did anything untoward yeah. or sneaky. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, he broke a rule that is enforced for a good reason, because I think that, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to you shouldn't be incentivized to skip a test rather than give the test. Right. In other words, you shouldn't be given incentive to skip a test when you know you might test positive for a test, knowing that if you skip a test, A, you can like claim innocence and whatever the penalty is given is less than testing positive. I don't think that's good. Logically, that makes sense to me. But still, I mean, I just don't think I'm just not convinced whatsoever that he actually was cheating. And for him to get the punishment more than people who actually were, it just something doesn't sit right. I understand why logically a, a, a refusal should equal a positive test. I, I get that intellectually, but I think it should be worse than a positive test. You think so? Yeah. I don't think it should be equal because if it's equal, then you still get to keep your reputation intact. In other words, you can skip a test. 
You can get banned for two years. You think trust like reputation year. is intact though now? I think this definitely hurts them. No. I really, I'm, other than the fact that people are like, what a dumbass. Oh, yeah. But I don't think it actually hurts him. I don't think that anybody who actually writes about tennis thinks that the guy doped. Right, but so many people are not writing about the doping incident like Steve Tigner. There's, you know, going to be much more sensationalist headlines. And wire, who? And wire stories that show up as blurbs in the paper that say Troisky suspended 18 months for doping. And they're not going to go any further into it. Or for doping well, violation that's... or something. Regardless of what the offense was, I think that people are still going to associate the two things together the same way they have for... Who's an example of someone else who... Gasquet. Gasquet. Yeah, Gasquet. Well, Gasquet. I mean, Gasquet. Come on, just, we laugh at Gasquet. Yeah, we we laugh no one actually Gasquet, thinks he did anything. No, no, no. But his was, his was also not a performance dancing thing. I'm trying to think of someone else who was, like, someone who we think... I don't know. I'm not sure if anyone's coming up for someone who did quite something like this. Victor, you're you're always unique. You're breaking new boundaries. Way to go. But yeah, I just think that they're not... That it's did more damage to him than he had coming. Basically is what I'm saying. You, but here's what I'm saying. You think that him skipping the test would have more damage to his reputation than if he tested positive to a test. It depends on if he tested positive and admitted it or did something like, oh, I had some balding medication like other people have claimed possibly. No way, dude. Really. Skipping a test, totally less of a, uh, I, I don't know. Like if people want to weigh in, please weigh in on this on like Facebook or Twitter. But I just think that skipping a test and not having a positive test on your record. Oh, okay. I agree. I, I, never mind. I agree with, I agree with that. Not having a positive test on your record. It's definitely better. There's, you can, you can always argue, Yeah. you know? So, you know, that's why I think that, that skipping a test should actually incur a strong, a harsher penalty than testing that's, positive. That's where we disagree then. How dare you? I know. Sometimes sometimes we don't agree. Oh, it's weird. It's weird. So a few days after Viktor Troitsky got banned, word began to surface out of Croatia that Marin Cilic was also facing an impending ban, this one actually for a positive test uh, for a substance, um, a performance-enhancing chemical trace, I believe, somewhere in the system. And he was notified of the of the positive test during Wimbledon, and that's why he pulled out on Black Wednesday. Remember, he was one of the people who pulled out early in the day and sort of got the Black Wednesday thing rolling. Um, he cited a knee injury in a second-round match and pulled out. Yeah, but now he hasn't played since. He hasn't entered a tournament since, although I did hear he might still be on a Canada entry list. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Anyway, what do you make of the Marin Cilic case and how it differs and what it says about the doping system and the tribunals and transparency therein and take this football and run with it wherever you want <laughs> i will um you know i mean in terms of like chillage testing positive you know without knowing any further detail it sounds like he was low on glucose his team went across the street to the pharmacy got him something to help with his glucose levels and didn't read and he didn't read like a warning for like professional athletes that there might be something in there that was kind of not good from a doping perspective. And he took it and he tested positive. Like Robert Kendrick. That's the, that's the Robert Kendrick scenario, essentially. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Whatever. Fine. Like, I don't, I'm not really vested one way or the other in, in how that whole thing plays out in terms of the circumstances of, you know, having spoken to a bunch of tennis players and under, and knowing how many of them are so incredibly paranoid. Oh yeah about what gets into their bodies. It's kind of inexcusable, in my opinion, for Chillage to ingest something that he didn't know what it was. So, whatever. But, I mean, I think that the Chillage thing really raises two problematic issues that, that I definitely have a problem with. One is the fact that 
he totally lied, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at Wimbledon, assuming that this is all assuming true. Assuming all this is true. And this is obviously, I've not all been confirmed right. yet. So this whole entire segment up here comes with that header. Exactly. It's a, it's a total caveat. But assuming that what is being reported by the creation media is true, should you be allowed to just, like, make up injuries in order to, like, excuse yourself from tournaments when you test positive? Like, that's incredibly problematic. Yes. Like, and, and while I understand, obviously, that, like, these players are not under oath, at any time like you know like they lie in press conferences they Mm -hmm. you know we know that they make up you know what is a niggling injury they cite as a major injury to justify some sort of like withdrawal or skipping a tournament or like whatever exactly we get it we know but in this situation i mean i don't know i don't know if it's because i'm a member of the press and so i feel like kind of like how dare you marin chilich you know lie to us yeah i was in that press conference when he pulled out i mean i was Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't for ask him specifically about the knee but I might have, and he might have said something slightly erroneous, and you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying I feel, you know, betrayed or anything, but it's not a great look, and it, and it's so, it's a weird system in tennis that the ITF has really essentially enforced, saying telling Marin Cilic to pull himself out of Wimbledon, or giving that as an option, saying come up with some reason to bail out of there, bail out of there, serve a provisional suspension, so agree not to play a tournament, right? Because he hasn't played since Wimbledon, correct. So effectively, I mean, I think the assumption is that he was, he tested positive. He found out about it before his second round match at Wimbledon. He basically agreed to serve a provisional ban Mm -hmm. and hasn't played since. And that's why he might be eligible to return in Montreal. There's so many problems with it. I mean, and and it's not even, this isn't even about Chillage now. No, not about about the ITF. Chillage, Chillage, I don't think, except for the dumbness of the, whatever the taking the supplement is, which again, I, I mean... I don't think there was intent to enhance right. performance there. Other than to just bring his glucose levels normal. The same the same thing that Zalabova Shritsova did too, I think. I mean she I mean you could say that weight loss is a little bit more performance enhancing, but I get the sense she just wanted to be bikini ready or something. The way that, the way that her product was advertised. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that it's just it doesn't reflect on him at all. This the rest of this can all point at the uh people who facilitated this plot to fold the way it has yeah i mean i i think that one thing that we definitely have kind of seen in particular with both the choisky and the chillich situations generally because they're more high profile players than like the streets of us Mm -hmm. the rumbolis or or even a kendrick is that a the amount of time that passes between when the violation occurs to when a full investigation completes and a, a decision is made and therefore the itf can comment I think is ridiculous Yeah. because I mean, go back and look at how many tournaments Victor Troisky played between Monte Carlo and Umag this week, last week and calculate. I mean, he earned over like $200,000 worth of cash. And what I don't understand from that decision is how do you ban him for 18 months for skipping a blood test, but let him keep the money. That's, it's all very strange. And I, what I, that doesn't make sense. Like conceptually, it doesn't make sense. And imagine if the men's Roland Garros straw had somehow gone full women's Wimbledon and Victor Trotsky had won the tournament, yeah, what do you think would have happened? And my guess, honestly, is that we would never would have heard about this skip test. Mm, interesting. I, I, I just don't know. I think there's such a PR element to the drug testing the way it's enforced now. Well, here, let me ask you this. Do you think that silent bans happen? <sighs> Not provisional bans, but silent bans. So players who are caught and sit out an amount of time as their punishment, like a lengthy I mean, time. 
I mean, I guess that, it, I mean, is that different than a provisional Just defining ban? the term. I think. Yeah, I know. I'm trying I think to think that too. I would not be shocked if they had. No, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, there's just so little. Why would you want to tarnish your sport? Exactly. What do they have to gain? Let's yeah. say that some man or woman who is in a grand slam final, or a, rather a semifinal even, turned out to tested positive in that event. The International Tennis Federation, if, if they're the ones making the decision and running the tests, why would they want to bring an enormous black cloud over the sport, especially if it was somebody who won a slam or was number one in the world or something like that? If a world number one goes down on either side, that's awful. I'm obviously not saying that the world number ones are currently cheating, but you just there's so much at stake I mean, for them, and there's so much conflict of interest there, and that's why I think that one of the solutions, and I don't know how much I'm not this is not my area of expertise. I know there are a bunch of sports journalists who now make you know the doping thing across all sports their forte. It's not mine, but I think the regional authorities that get involved with it, like the you know U.S. ADA, um, the uh, French anti-doping authorities, the Flemish ones who got, who went after Melise and Wickmeyer a few years ago. I mean, that I think it sort of has to be, and even then, people maybe who aren't from the same country as them, in case you want to say, oh, I don't know, fill in the blank country. Obviously, the uh, pick some random country that has good PR. The Finnish, you know, anti-doping authorities are never going to crack down on Niemannen. Right. Just be, if there's no conflict there, it should be some non-invested body making decisions. Because I absolutely think that if something turned up and a really big star got caught, they would be not incentivized to do it. The only one who I really can think of who has gotten collared recently, and two, I guess, the two biggest stars who have tested positive for things recently, were Gasquet and Hengis. Yep. And they both got cocaine, and they both had these unbelievably small amounts of cocaine they tested, tested positive for, especially Hengis. And hers was yep. like, I think less than a third of the amount required to trigger a positive test on the, on the military, uh, U.S. military testing regimens. So I think those were not performance enhancing, so they're not quite as sport befouling. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, have, I have doubts about certain things. And not that, I mean, maybe there are incidents I'm thinking of in my head, but on the whole, who knows what's going on? Because no one knows outside of the privileged few in that confidential governing body. Yeah, I mean, that's what becomes extremely frustrating is that you feel like there has to be a tipping point with with the doping within tennis, which is that there has to be a point where whether it's perception or if there's some sort of monetary gain, although that's pretty tough or branding or anything, there has to be a point where there is a financial incentive to catch dopers, yeah. like the top dopers. I don't give a shit about anybody who's ranked outside the top 100. I don't really even care if you're ranked outside the top 50. Okay, like, you know, like, I mean, I think that that's the problem with the ITF is that, like, they can go and grab somebody who's ranked outside the top 100 or, or ranked, you know, outside the top 50 and say, see, we're catching dopers because, eh, not really. I mean, there's still going to be doubts about what's going on in the upper echelons of the game where, you know, the stakes are even higher. And, you know, and I have different, I mean, I'm not saying that anybody in the top like 10 is doping because I have personally my own opinions as to whether or not, like, it makes sense to once you're a top player. Okay, explain those. Well, I just think that when, when it comes to doping, it's a risk-reward situation, right? right? So when there is little risk and high reward, then yeah, like you would try and get away with it. You would try and do everything that you could to win an extra match, to win an extra $5,000, like whatever. And that's why to me, it makes more sense for it to happen, you know, in the lower ranks. Okay. Because, you know, 
the risk is maybe you won't get caught and the reward is like maybe you'll make like more money and you're so much more desperate to make money. Yeah, you have much less to lose. Right, you're not wealthy and if you get caught, like so be it because like you weren't, If maybe if you didn't dope or take PEDs, like you might not have achieved anything anyway. So the the risk reward on the on the lower end of the spectrum is of, of rankings is is positive. I mean, I can see how it's almost incentivized. But once you become like a top ten, top twenty player, the risk is too high. You're too much to lose. At that yeah. point, at that point, you're making a good living. Mm-hmm. You have a career. You you have a career that you can make. You know, yeah, maybe you're not making you know. 10 million a year in prize money or whatever, or 5 million a year in prize money, but you're making a good living, you're traveling around and you're all right. So the reward is far less and the risk is too high because if you get caught, you're done. You are losing everything. So that's kind of how I feel about like doping within the upper echelons, generally speaking. I mean, would it surprise me if like a top player on either the men or women's side like got caught? No, because I'm super cynical about drugs and ten- uh, drugs and sport generally. Yeah. I mean that all this came all the Trotsky stuff and the Chilich stuff came in the very short time after Ryan Braun yep. admitted that he had been lying all along. And all and all of the stuff in track and field as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean it's just it's, you know, I think that generally speaking you are a bit I mean beyond naive if you think that tennis is clean. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I think that there are, I think there are people who could be technologically years ahead of the system on doping and are doping in the top 10. I'm not convinced that the top 10 is necessarily clean. I don't, I'm not saying you think you're convinced either. You're just making an argument yeah, yeah. Why, they, no, I know. why they shouldn't. But yeah, I'm not I'm not convinced. And I think, but we talked about this a few months ago off air. I think tennis, unlike cycling, and maybe unlike a home run derby or something, maybe, I mean, maybe not that, but unlike cycling, tennis is a sport where you could easily have a top five where five of them were doping and five of them weren't. And they were still relatively competitive with each other. I don't think it's going to be a thing where, like, the history books look back and everyone who was in the quarterfinals of a given slam was doping. I don't right. see it that Right, it wouldn't happening. be like you wiped out the entire... Yeah, yeah I yeah, don't yeah. see no, that happening. That's fair. I think it's going to be a pretty... But that's why be a percentage of people, but not a suffocating percentage. Yeah, but then that's why I say, like, I just don't think that once you get into the upper echelons, that it makes any sense. Because I kind of agree with you that I really don't think that it makes that big of a difference when you're at that that top elite level. And to the extent that it makes any difference at all, which it can. I mean, obviously, like if you talk, especially when you talk about recovery issues yeah. um, and off-season training blocks, if you can kind of train harder in the off-season, harder than your, you know, competitors uh, with the assistance of, of performance enhancing drugs, like that obviously provides a, a benefit throughout the year. But on the whole, I just, I don't know. I just think the risk is so high. Risk is high. I mean, people, these are, yeah, I think the risk is high, but I, I don't know. I think there are people willing to make the gamble. I mean, if you've spent your whole life playing tennis and you're hitting a ceiling somewhere along the way and someone, or, and you figure out that there is a way to try to break through that ceiling, I think people are going to roll the dice. Not saying all, but I'm saying some, some people will not listen to their sure. logical sides. Or they'll listen to the logical side and just sort of hope to not get caught. Because if you don't get caught, it's a great deal. If you don't get caught, if, but, I mean the risk if, is. But you see how few people are getting caught right now. Well, that's no, it's fair. I mean, if you if you have a a strong team behind you and you yeah are ahead of the curve in terms of technology, yeah, I mean, it, but you know nowadays one thing that that the cycling and and in, in particular has really proven is that, or in baseball as well, like, yeah, you may not get caught now, but you'll get caught eventually. Now, is that like a true risk? Maybe not because fuck, you made your money. Like look at Lance Armstrong. Okay. Oh, 
And he is like totally vilified. I mean, I do think he's vilified, but he's like a multi fucking millionaire. I also, do, I also don't think I don't think that getting caught is inevitable. I, I think that if you were a top five player now, who is who was doping and never tested positive, I don't think it's necessarily guaranteed that you would get revealed to be have been doping within twenty years down the road. I don't. I think there it's must not guaranteed. someone can slip through the cracks. Sure, no, it's not guaranteed, but it could happen. Could happen, sure. And that goes in towards the analysis that one makes in terms of the risk-reward, right? Like, all I'm saying is that in the big scheme of things, I just don't think that eventually getting caught is a huge risk because, okay, maybe I'll get caught in 15 years, but in 15 years, I'll have a pretty significant nest egg based on my performance while doping. Sure. So, okay, everybody hates me. And I'm vilified and I don't get inducted into the Hall of Fame and I'm like a horrible black mark on the sport. I still have food on my table. My kids are still going to go to college and I have a pretty good life. So I'm not really worried about it. So there you go. We're so cynical. I know. It's kind of sad. So on a much happier topic, City Open is rolling back into the nation's capital and this week <laughs> and as presumably clean <laughs> why not <laughs> and it started off with a bit of a, a thud as the number two seed on the women's side sloan stevens lost in straight sets to number 88 olga puchkova monday night on an outer court which is bizarre i'll get into that more later basically it's the short version of it is that sloan did decide based on the scheduling options available to her that she wanted to play on that court. So there you Fair go. Fair enough. But yeah, Sloan lost, um, sort of spraying the ball, just could not really get any range on her strokes whatsoever, mistiming things, sending things along that were sort of not aggressive shots that she was missing, and it was ugly. And afterward, Sloan talked about it. Sloan just looked like a day where nothing kind of just couldn't find it. Is that basically how you felt? Just couldn't get in the rhythm at all? Yeah, I mean, leading up, I wasn't didn't practice that great, and I just wasn't feeling the ball up there. And I mean, sometimes you have tough days like that, and I'm fortunate that it came today that I couldn't really get it together. But I mean, there'll be more tournaments, so it's okay. Has it been like a thing since Wimbledon, or just the last few days that's been feeling off? No, I think just like the last few days. I mean, the ball change and just little things, and I think um, I really just couldn't find it. And I mean. Obviously, when you don't practice well, it shows. So um, I had a couple of rough, day, couple rough days, and I think um, definitely it showed out there. But, I mean, Olga played great, and, I mean, sometimes you're going to have those days, and unfortunate to that today was that day. Is everything okay physically? Like, is your abdominal feeling okay? Because you look a little slow up there. Yeah, about fine. So... When I'm injured, I play great, and then when I'm <laughs> healthy, I can't hit the ball more. So, yeah. You've had such success at the big events this year, um, and kind of struggled at the smaller events. Do you think there's a reason for that, or is it just easier to kind of get up when it's Wimbledon or the US Open? No, I think honestly, like everyone asked me that question, but I think the point is to like peak at the Grand Slam. You want to play yeah. your best tennis at the Grand Slam. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, like. <laughs> Most of the tournaments I like like train really hard like leading up to a tournament like this and then I don't play that well and it's probably because like I did fitness like eight hours a day for like last week like things like that yeah. and like people just don't know that so you you you're like wow you look slow and horrible and it's like oh well, sorry like just a bad day and I mean definitely I don't know why I play so well at the slams and not that well in the slams. Playing well at the slams is a 
good problem to have, though, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone says, like, it's a bad thing, but I'm like, isn't that the point? Like, <laughs> Before um, last time I was with you in Charleston, you were pretty excited to get out of the States, and you kind of thought Europe would, you know, breathe, give you a breath of fresh air, and of course you had a great French Open in Wimbledon. How are you feeling coming back to the States now with more attention and everything? Yeah, definitely a lot of pressure coming back to the States, but... Um, Definitely, just something you have to deal with. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, but I mean, you wonder how Serena feels. Like, there's a lot more pressure on her to win a Grand Slam or yeah. win every tournament that she plays. So, I mean, definitely when I look at it, it's not, it's a lot of pressure on me, but there's pressure on a lot of other players that feel way more than I do. So, kind of just got to play with that and know that, you know, everyone's playing with the same, you know, weight on their shoulders. Do you have any expectations going into the U.S. Open? Um, no, not really. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Everyone's going to be like, you should do really well here because you've done well at all the slams. And if I lose first round, you guys just don't be upset because uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really, I don't know. It's going to be my first time playing under a lot of pressure and everyone expecting me to do so well and things like that. But, I mean, it's definitely, we're at like five more weeks, so we'll see. Hopefully I'll be playing a lot better by then. So you already are thinking about, like, trying to drown up the buzz in New York? Yeah, I don't care anymore. I'm like, whatever. Is so, it going to be hard? I mean, but you have been thinking about how to cope with it. It's going to be something that... Yeah, I mean, up. obviously getting closer, it'll be a lot tougher. But, I mean, anyway, it's not anything I can control. Like, whatever people say or however they feel I should do, they're, like, they don't work out with me. They don't practice with me. They don't do half the things I have to do. So, I mean, whatever everyone thinks is whatever. But, I mean, I have to just go out and play and play hard and compete. What were your uh, thoughts when Bartoli won Wimbledon? I mean, I thought that was great. I mean, who would have thought at the beginning of the tournament that she would have won Wimbledon? Like, that's insane. But, I mean, she deserves it. And if anyone deserves it, she does. She's been playing for so long. And, I mean, she played really great. So, well-deserved to her. And um, I think it's awesome. I wonder if she's going to have any extra pressure on her. <laughs> <laughs> And so, Corny, what do you make of, of Sloane's remarks there? I mean, I tweeted about this a little bit, and, and obviously Sloane is, is always a, a topic of conversation. But, you know, one of the things that I just remember from Wimbledon as, as really standing out was after Sloane had lost to Bartoli in the quarterfinals. She made, you know, somebody asked, you know, are you ready to kind of go back to the States? And, and you know, because she had said prior to the European swing that she was looking forward to going to Europe because nobody cares about her there. In Charleston, yeah, she kept saying that over and over. Yeah, exactly. And But in the States, like, everybody cares. At, and, and so at Wimbledon, she was saying that, and she was like, well, you know, maybe I'll talk to, like, Laura Robson about it to kind of get a better idea of, like, what the pressure is like and stuff. And I just remember the quote stuck out in my head because I think that initially my reaction was like, dude, what Laura Robson is in the UK is so not what you are in the States. That's true. Like, you're not a household name. You're not, like, you know, your late nights out at a club are not photo documented for a tabloid, you know, like... Oh, oh, Laura, turning into, oh, turning Laura. into Pete Doherty before our eyes. <laughs> no, I think that I, like, I, I told my fellow jurors today, sorry I keep mentioning this, but it's been occupying my life the last seven days. Um, I, my fellow jurors, I was like, I have to go to this tennis room. They're like, oh, who's playing there? I was like, oh, you know, Sloan Stevens? Blank looks from the other 13 members of society randomly chosen to be in this room. <laughs> so I don't think. She was blanked by a jury of her peers. Yeah, and I, and I don't think that at all means that, like, you know, she's not a, big deal in the tennis world. However, I think that she's not the crossover star 
that she is that Laura Robson is in the UK because the UK is such a desperate market and the US is not that desperate, honestly. Yeah, I guess Sloan's results have been better, but you know, there you go. You think Sloan's results have been better than Laura's? In their careers, yes. Huh. I mean, just based not wins. This is how you determine. I mean, Sloan made a Grand Slam quarter uh, quarterfinal and a semifinal. Laura uh-huh. hasn't done that. Uh-huh. Sloan um, beat Serena at a slam. Big, big, big. Took out the favorite at a slam. Laura hasn't done that. I mean, I don't think that Laura... You're right. Laura has not beaten an injured Serena at a slam. <sighs> okay. Okay. I, 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 no, I, I, mean, I totally I... understand that asterisk. I, I always include it in keeping Sloan's results in context. And I do believe that Sloan has had some pretty easy draws at slams. It's part of why she's had so much success at slams, honestly, in the past I... 12 months. Outside of injured Serena, Sloan has never beaten a top 10 player. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, that's right. She hasn't made a WTA final. Yep. And, I mean, I'm not saying that it's like one way or the other, but like this concept of like, this is, but I mean, this is kind of what I was getting at, which is just that Sloan always talks about this notion of pressure and that like everybody expects her to win and everybody expects her to be the future of American tennis. And I'm not really sure that that's the case. Like, I really kind of get the sense personally that like, at least my, this is just my personal take that she's really kind of not anointed herself because I know that there are articles that say like Sloane Stevens future of American tennis but you know in terms of the people that she sees on a day on a weekly basis which means like the tennis beat writers and um, stuff like that like I don't really think that her self-assessment is accurate I, I would probably disagree with that I think everywhere as she goes there's people who aren't tennis beat writers who will be asking her, oh, you know, you're the next big thing in American tennis. How do you feel about that? Do you feel about the pressure of, like, everyone think you're the next big thing? You're the next big thing. You beat Serena. You've, you know, second highest ranked American, man or woman at this point. I mean, she's way ahead of Isner and Query. Yeah, I do think that the hype is real. I mean, I don't think the hype is imagined or that she's blowing it out of proportion. I think the hype really is real. I think it'll be at DEFCON 5 during the U.S. Open. And that's why she said those things about, be nice if I lose, you guys, because I think she's, she's, I think she... I don't know if she knows that she's been overachieving so far, just on basic results level and the points. I think that her point, her ranking right now is a little bit inflated from what it should be based on the scalp she has. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that anybody would sit here who follows women's tennis would say that Sloane Stevens is the 15th best women's tennis player in the world. Not right now. And that's what we were saying when we did our Wimbledon show is that Sloane came relatively close to winning Wimbledon. She really did. She had a tough two-setter against Bartoli. Then she would have gotten Flipkins. And then she would have gotten a choking Sabine Lisicki. So that could have happened. And it would have been just way... I mean, obviously, he went Wimbledon. It's hard to say, oh, you don't deserve to win Wimbledon. I mean, you're not really that good, right? You're not ready. I mean, if you win Wimbledon, that's, you know, a scoreboard situation there. But I don't know. I think there's so much there that still needs refining in her game and in her, in her compete level. I mean, there were just points in the match today where she just seemed to just to have sort of taken her foot off the pedals of the car and just sort of let it drift or crash into whatever it was heading towards. And there were points in her matches at Wimbledon, especially against Chekhovska in the mm-hmm. third round, where she was getting killed. I think she lost eight straight games at some point and just seemed helpless to stop it. And eventually Chekhovska mostly, I think, tightened up. Choked. And Sloan took advantage. I mean, Sloan did close really well Wimbledon in a few tight matches. She survived Petkovic and Chekhovska. And Puig. and Puig. And those were three matches she could have lost easily. So, I mean, I give her some credit for not losing her nerve as much as her opponent on the given day. But 
I think she's been playing down to her opponent's levels too much for a top 20 player. She doesn't go out there and thwomp people. And I think with her weapons, that's something she should be doing more of. So, But then again, she's young. She is 20 years old. So she's got time. And I just hope that she doesn't... I hope that people keep... I guess I'm agreeing with her. I'm saying don't give her too much high point to the US Open. And, and and be and be nice and be nice to her if she loses first round. I totally agree yeah. with all of that. I, I you know, but I just think I think where I'm coming from is just kind of like what's going on in her own head in terms of the pressure because she has the protection of Serena, insofar as like attention. And she said that. Yeah, you know, going into the U.S. Open, like focus will be on Serena. On top of that, at least within kind of the tennis cognoscente, like Good people work. really. Thank you. People are really starting to kind of shift their focus to Madison. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. As being the future of American tennis. Yep. And so she's kind of got this, I think, kind of an ideal situation where she's got some good results. She's got a good ranking. But I just don't think that she's going to be like that big of a focus at the Open. I, and maybe I'm just projecting because I just don't anticipate myself writing about her in that way. I think you're completely projecting on that. She's going to be a huge deal. That's fair. That's totally fair. I can see where I'm being, I have a blind spot. Marty Fish came back and won his first match since Indian Wells. Still seemed uneasy and just sort of not all there and not ready for this yet. And he had some interesting things to say about that. So now we'll hear from Marty. How did you feel first one in a while? Does it feel pretty good? Yeah, it feels, uh, it feels real good. Uh, I've played well in practice, um, put in a lot of hours. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, I'd be remiss not to say months, but it's been, it's been months. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, Satisfying. Um, he's a guy that I've lost to before. He's a good player. Everybody's good. Um, so it's satisfying to win for sure. Has health been an issue lately, or you're pretty much back to 100%? Um, 100% might be strong, but it's been very good. Everything's gone well. Um, get putting myself in difficult situations. In Atlanta, for instance, I played a match pretty late. We had we got a rain delay, so I had to wait till like 11. Then they put us back out again. Then I had to come back the next day, go to bed super late. These are things that um, a year ago I really really struggled with. Um, so um, it's nice to know that I can get through those those situations um, well and, and 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 be okay to come back the next day, compete well on the court, um, just enjoy the competition more than more than anything else at this right now at this stage just coming just coming back right now I mean my expectations as far as you know winning the tournament are probably pretty low um, and so yeah just enjoying competing and um, see what happens are you feeling comfortable yet or are you still feeling sort of uneasy yeah it's a it's still a process for sure there's no doubt about it yeah I, feel, I still feel a little uneasy and that's to be expected. I mean, it's not going to be roses uh, right away. Uh, and the, you know, these are tough tournaments. I mean, these are these are tournaments that I excelled in um, when when the weather's tough and when the weather's you know super hot and nobody likes to play in it and everyone's kind of coming over from Europe and not really used to the weather, used to the climate conditions. And um, these are you know times when I really did play my best. 
and was able to push through sometimes when I was hurting and not feeling well and had to bluff it and because and, he knew the other guy wasn't feeling well too. And so th those will be situations as well that I'll have to get through um, to you know push myself back to 100%. Like, are there particular things that are still like about the match environment or something still, or you can detail that I don't know, uh -huh. less, you're less yeah. ready for than others? Yeah, um, you know, I, I struggled mightily um, during the U.S. Open last year, but you know, so those, those sort of post-traumatic experiences that I've had, that I have now, are what I need to get over um, right now. But you know, it's a process, man. It's just it's not an easy game, and fitness is as big a part of it as playing and you know sometimes that uh that's trouble it spells trouble for me but uh so far so good courtney what do you make of what the next few weeks are going to hold in store for marty fish and i guess if he's up to it or what what's going to happen i mean i think that you know based on what i saw of his match against michael russell in the first round of atlanta he definitely played well enough to win that match. So it was nice to see him, like, actually finally pick up a win, you know, against Matthew Ebden in the first round of um, D.C. So, you know, I mean, I think that it's it's just kind of touching, not touch and go with Marty, but it's it's just one match at a time. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, he's not a person that you should expect anything of, and that's no disrespect for, to him. That's actually more respect for what he's gone through, kind of the, the physical and, and psychological, you know, issues that he's had to deal with and is continuing to deal with. So I think that it's just really kind of more the reaction is, you know what, glad to have you back, Marty, and, and to, to have that name there and, and pick up a few wins in there, here and there. But, you know, I would definitely caution against having any sort of expectation for him at the open or anything like that i would i would mostly agree with that i just hope that he i feel like for talking about people who put pressure and obviously i know there's more going on with him than just pressure but and i know that's a veiled terms but he's only talking about it in veiled terms so it's hard to talk about sometimes with him as i'm sure you know you can attest as both him and people who have to write about him now it's right. not it's an eggshell situation but with marty i think the pressure he puts on himself is largely in his own head, and I, I don't know how much he realizes that entirely, but when he, you know, thinks that, oh, I'm going to go play Cincinnati, and oh, maybe I'll play, let's throw out a name, I'll play Del Potro first round of Cincinnati, I don't want to have too much pressure on myself, people expecting me to win, like, Marty, I don't mm, think people yeah. expect you to win, like, I think, I, I, I don't know, I think maybe, I don't know if the number one American stuff and having to answer for losses got to him on that front or what, but, I don't know, and I'm obviously, again, not trying to be doctor from afar whatever his issues are or aren't it just seems like um this he, he makes the stakes out to be more than they are if there was a way for him to convince himself and obviously this is all much easier said than done convince himself that you know he really has nothing to lose people aren't waiting on marty fish to succeed or fail and you know mm -hmm. people aren't saying marty don't let us down no one's saying that so yeah no totally agree with that so as we wrap up our 50th show, Courtney, we'd like to once again remind everybody, as per always, if you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast, and you can also follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. 
They're different just so we can confuse you. We like to do it. We like to be a little different. Keep you on your toes. We're not trying to make this an easy experience for you to follow us. It's sort of, uh, we're sort of like leprechauns in the forest as far as podcasters. Exactly. You know, we work hard, you work hard. This is the kind of partnership, the contract that we, Ben and I, make with you, listener. So it's been hard work, but it's been, I think it's been fun, our first 50 shows, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's definitely been fun, and it's been funny to think back that really this whole thing, this whole gambit started really kind of out of a drunken conversation in Australia, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think you were probably drunker <laughs> than I was, as per usual. Oh, I usually am. But, I usually am. But it was something like so. that. It was just like, because we talk to each other about tennis a lot, I mean, we we don't we do do it daily basis. on a daily basis. Usually not an hour long uh, forum with musical interludes, but we do do it when we can. And uh, so putting it on vinyl, so to speak, and sharing it with the world has been fun. And thank you for putting us on your your turntables. It's been it's been cool. And we hope to have fifty more shows for you in in due time. Now that we're clicking along, so this show is sort of has the show changed that much? I guess we have much of player audio in this one, but otherwise, I don't think it's that different from when it started, really. It's that I mean I think that generally speaking we you know are as free with our opinions as we were from the first episode but I do think that over time we've kind of used our access a little bit more that's true you know to kind of you know give people insight and that's one thing that I think that I'm actually quite proud of with respect to the podcast is I think that what differentiates us from maybe other tennis podcasts or even media podcasts is that we try to give people some sort of insight into kind of what happens behind the scenes, what a press room is like, what different players are like to deal with on a, you know, personal basis and and things like that. And so hopefully that is some like a value that we can add because at the end of the day now, you know, now with kind of how technology is like, you guys have all the access to the transcripts. You have, you see all the matches, you can see the stream, you see all the matches, you see things on YouTube, like, you know, and stuff like that. So in terms of what we can offer, it's really just our experience inside the press room and, and our you know insight, but everybody's got an opinion and our opinion is not any more valuable than anybody else's. But it's been fun to kind of just engage in dialogue and, I don't know, yeah. talk about the sport in a fun, mildly irreverent, but hopefully informative way. The way that we talk, I mean, just talk about the sport the way we talk about it to each other and other people who yeah. like the sport. <laughs> so that's that's been key. And yeah, if you guys like the show, let us know. And if you, if you have suggestions for things you'd want to hear, more of or less of, I guess, on on the next set of fifty. Stop shows. talking about the WTA. God, Courtney, stop talking about Jamie Hampton so much. <laughs> Get over Tim Smeacek, Ben. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, if you if you have suggestions for us, please uh, put them on our Facebook page. On send us to us on Twitter, and we're happy to happy to engage in constructive conversation about things. There we go. I have, like, almost never talked about Smeechek on this show. FYI. It almost <laughs> never happened. But the fact that you haven't is so glaring and so obvious <laughs> oh, and so awkward. Oh, please. So awkward. Oh, please. Okay. So awkward. Okay. So that's all for us for episode 50, folks. I don't know where we're heading, but I'm willing and ready to go, as they said. Adios. Later. I don't know where we're heading. I'm willing.